What's up everyone? This is Gwen. This is JV. This is Chapoy aka DJ Shrimp and you're listening to Millionaire 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 Interviews. Interviews. One thing that I think is important for people to realize is it's really hard to make money. It is really 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 easy to lose money and to lose a lot of money. It just wasn't working. It was a challenge. And so we decided as a business, I had to make the decision as the owner that we were going to do a massive pivot. If you budget your time, that's the only thing that no one can get any more of. We all have the same amount of it. And if you budget and you focus and you put a plan together, you will have the time to get things started and build what you want to build. Good morning. My name is Tyler Walton. I'm 43 years old. I currently reside in Denver, Colorado, and I am the founder and president of Five Logistics. Born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Born and raised in Salt Lake.、Uh, have spent time in Dallas, Texas, Cleveland, Ohio, and recently, or I guess our last place we hope is Denver. We've been here since 2004. You smoke a lot of ganja. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might help, but we haven't made that jump yet. Is that what you're transporting now with Five Logistics? The laws in moving it and managing it and selling it are extremely tight. So the only work that I do for that industry is warehousing of some of the packaging materials and shipping of some of the hydroponics to help grow it. That's as far as I get into the marijuana industry today. So you said you're with Five Logistics. So why don't you give us a little bit of a rundown on what y'all do exactly there? Yeah, Five Logistics is a family-run 3PL. We focus primarily on complex fulfillment. We store our customers' inventory. We have systems integrated to their shopping cart or their retailers, and we do all of their inventory management and order fulfillment. In addition to that, we do managed transportation services. We have our own trucks for local deliveries, and we do a little bit of event logistics as well. And what's 3PL? Third-party logistics. That's a term or a fancy way of saying we help people get their stuff from here to there and whatever they need in between. And is it all local? No, we are managing transportation from across the ocean. We import product for our clients in Europe and in China and. As close as you know, a few miles away from a manufacturer here in Denver. So let's just keep it as simple as possible, as far as like how you make money. Yeah, we make money by fulfilling clients' orders. We charge them order fees and processing fees. We make money upon the shipping that we manage, and then we have a large warehouse and we have a revenue stream from storage as well. Well, can you give us like a simple example? Sure. We have a client because we are in Denver, Colorado, and we're close to the mountains and the best skiing in the world. I would say one of our clients is a ski manufacturer. We receive all of their skis. They're locally made. They're made in the U.S. They're actually made in Colorado. We inventory all of their skis, and as they get ready for their season and their dealers,、uh, the ski shops across the world. Want their orders? We'll go ahead and pull the specific order for that dealer, package it up, and ship it out to them. And then, as the season goes on, if there's any dealer replenishment, we do that. And then, all of their online orders 
that are going to a consumer will also process those. So if someone wants to buy a pair of skis off their website, it gets shipped out of our warehouse. So you're talking about a ski resort and making money. So can you give us simple numbers on like what type of money you'd make on that, how much they're sending out? For this company, we'll process anywhere between seven and 10,000 pairs of skis out. And that entire opportunity, including shipping and packaging and supplies and all of the labor that we do, you know, might be around $100,000 in revenue to us. Are you just a broker or like, are you doing more than that? Logistics is such a broad spectrum. And I only know that because I've recently talked to somebody, they were a logistics company, but that was the first one I've ever talked to. And I didn't realize how large it is and what different parts go together and fit together. Sure. Let's break it down a little bit more then. So our trucks will go and pick up the product as it's completed at the manufacturer. We will charge for our truck going and picking up the inventory. Once it's at our warehouse, we unload it. We'll go ahead and verify that what was sent from the manufacturer is what the client was expecting. We'll put that inventory into our system, which then makes it available for our customer to process orders. And an order can be as simple as a single pairs of skis going to someone in Utah or California or to a big dealer that might order several hundred pairs. And we will charge fees. We call them order fees and pick fees. We help some of our clients with packaging. So the boxes that these items are shipped in, the materials, what we call filler, we provide all of that. We have a cost and then we sell it. There's a little bit of profit in that as well. And then we actually work hard to contract and have favorable rates with carriers like UPS and FedEx and DHL. And we have rates established with them. And we're able to ship and use their services to get our client's product from one location to the other. So it might come from our warehouse and go to one of their clients, or it might be picking up from a location other than our warehouse and shipping to somewhere completely different. So in third-party logistics, there's always a lot of moving pieces and parts. You know, for one client, we can use anywhere between 10 and 15 different vendors, including ourselves, our own warehouse to get things done for their business. So we don't walk into a repetitive day very often. I mean, I've heard of 3PLs. I just haven't studied it at all recently or heard an interview with it recently. So basically someone's just shipping something overseas. You're holding the storage areas. Like if I'm selling skis online, instead of having them shipped to my house, if I'm buying them from China, I have it shipped to you. You hold it, you charge me a fee. And then when someone buys it, then it goes from your warehouse, even though you might be in Denver and I live in Florida, you send it out to them. So I don't have to hold on to it. Is that it? Absolutely. We look at anyone that owns a product and wants to buy a business. We participate in their supply chain, either on the fulfillment side or even further up in managing the transportation. And really our whole existence is based upon saving our clients time, trouble, and money. You know, they holding inventory, processing orders seems very simple. But when you talk about having to have inventory management systems, when you talk about having to be integrated to your own shopping cart, to let's say the biggest shopping portal with Amazon or the biggest online company with Amazon, or you've got retailers that you're needing to ship to, and those retailers have routing guides and chargebacks. There's a lot of moving pieces and parts and people that have a product and work on selling it don't realize how important it is to have a professional that has been there that knows what to do to help them save time and money for sure 
And then we tend to keep our clients out of a fair amount of trouble as well. And so have third-party logistics, can you give us like a history? Has it always been something that you can do or with the rise of e-commerce, has it exploded? Because maybe back in the day, I'm just thinking the bigger companies, they had their own warehouses where they could deal with this and have their own departments. But maybe with smaller companies, as that arose more, maybe they needed someone like y'all to hold that product for them because they don't want to deal with that. Yeah, not necessarily. 10 years ago, the term that was more popular was warehousing and distribution. It's been only the last decade, I would say, where the online, the buying and shipping to your home business has come alive. But you know, before it used to be companies would have third-party warehouse and distribution companies hold their inventory and ship it by pallet or ship it by case. It's only recently that we've gotten in to reach inside a box and ship an individual item. We're having to, when we package it up, be concerned about customer's first impression. And so we are doing more than just putting an item in a box. There's gift cards and gift notes that are sent. There's specific packaging that they want to help with first impressions. You know, over the last decade, this business of shipping of e-commerce has grown to be more common. Everybody's buying online. Going to the store has not been as big of a requirement and businesses, big retailers, and even small companies have had to find out how to get into this business and be successful. And that created a way for companies like Five Logistics, fulfillment companies, to come into the scene and be as a big a part of this growing that has happened with uh, online shopping. Do you guys actually own the real estate, the warehouse, and run it, or does someone else run it and own the real estate? Tell us how that works as far as your assets and liabilities as a company. Sure. We rent our space. The one thing that's really important to think about is today I might have 25, 30 different accounts in my warehouse. And each of those accounts have high times of business, low times of business, high season, peak season, and their inventory levels fluctuate. So that's one value of using a 3PL is that you don't have to get a big enough warehouse to hold all your inventory during your peak season and then have it go down to practically nothing during your slow season and pay the rent on that. We have, you know, our clients inventory yo-yoing and we too have to be able to work through those highs and lows in inventory. We have our own facility. We are 40,000 square feet. We're a fully wrecked facility, which means that I'm storing inventory on shelving or warehouse racking four different, five different, six different levels high in my warehouse so that I can get as much inventory in as I possibly can in as tight a space as I can so that I can manage it well and get to it easy. And then during high times, you know, I have to work with other locations and make sure that I have enough space to handle all the inventory that my clients are bringing in and wanting to sell for the year. So what do you think about that group call? That was good. It's cool because you get to see what other people are doing. They're kind of in the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful. Definitely. Yeah. Actually, a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting. And yeah, this makes sense as far as I'm thank you for breaking it down more and simplistic because even when I'm talking about the assets and liabilities. So this is just like if I wanted to rent an office, you know, I could either buy the office building, right? That might be 2000 square feet for, you know, me and a couple of employees, or I could rent it and run my business out of it. So basically you're doing the same thing within an industrial center because you're focused on making sure everything's as efficient as possible coming in and coming out of the warehouse, right? 
Correct. My biggest expense is, is really the labor that we have working within the warehouse. So whatever tools I can give my labor to be as efficient and successful, it allows us to make the money that we need to make. And it allows us to give our clients the best possible service at the best possible price we can. And how much inventory is coming in and out on a yearly basis? And can you tell us about your company size? We range between 2.5 and 3.5 million in total revenue. We're six years old. We started in September of 2012. We started as complete ground up self-funded business. We have grown organically and today you know, we're taking care of, like I said, between 25 and 30 companies. We have about 18 to 20 employees on staff right now as we get ready for our busy season. Well, with the five logistics, you're saying it started about six years ago, but maybe this is the time to reel it back to see how you got actually into this space, right? Obviously, the company's not super old, but did you have a background in logistics? I have been in logistics for about the last 20 years, but really I think what's interesting for me is this is five logistics is the third business that I have started and it is the fifth company that I have ownership in. Is that why it's called five logistics? It's not five logistics. Oh. <laughs> is actually, that could have been it and Still can be. we like that, but actually when we wanted to start the business, it really was because I was working in California. I was traveling a lot. At that time, I had three little kids, nine, seven, and five years old. After spending over a hundred nights on the road, we as a family said, it's time to make a change again. We wanted to do a business that wasn't an agency. It wasn't a franchise. It wasn't something that, you know, that others were able to have really a say and direction. And we wanted to build something on our own. And when I say we, my wife started the business with me. So five logistics, we made it as personal as we could. We've got three kids who actually today help us in the business. So all five of us. Oh, is that the five? Are the ones who, that's where the five comes from. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> all right, well, I know we eventually get to that. So let's talk about when you started making, you know, I guess you started a company six years ago. How much money did you save up? And just tell us how you get started in those initial days. The initial days, actually, the story for five logistics is kind of fun. We were needing to make a change. As I said, I was spending a lot of time on the road and one of my neighbors, a good friend, we were talking as we were out riding bikes one day. And I said, you know, this is what I think I want to do. And he is a lighting manufacturer and owns his own company as well. And so he started to drill into it and said, you know, what are the things that are stopping you? What's your challenges? And I went through the list and one of them was warehouse space. You know, we wanted to get started and didn't have as big of a budget as we needed to. And, you know, we had a great ride. We didn't think much of it. And three or four days later, I get a call and he's like, okay, I've got you taken care of. You can use some of the space in my warehouse. Now get going. It was the launch, the little help that we needed to get the business started. And we got the legal part, got the business name set up, got the website, domain purchased, and really just started working on it. I remember by a month or two later, we got into the warehouse space. And in Colorado, we're kind of a dog-friendly environment in, in a lot of the offices. So I always tell people, you know, the first few weeks of starting the business and being in the warehouse, I had one client come in and they said, hey, we just need some storage. So they brought in nine pallets of product. There was me in an office and my dog was hanging out with me and I was just working on vendors and carriers and customers. And that's really where the business started from scratch. And we just kept building it and kept finding people to help us, clients that we had worked with in the past and continued to work with us. So it was a slow start, but really kind of a fun time in the early days. 
And by clients, you mean like people that you had worked with in the past from like bigger companies? You just had relationships there and told them that you had your own warehouse now? I did, yeah. I had worked in Denver and in our industry in logistics, because it is so complicated, I think companies really align with individuals that tend to take care of them and do a good job. So I was fortunate enough to have some good experiences with customers and they were excited when we started Five and wanted to support Five and were there early and was part of the foundation that we started from. Tell us about how much money you had, you know, you needed to save up in order to get the business started. We started five logistics with $25,000. I was living in Colorado. I was commuting to California for work. The company that I was working for was getting ready to sell. We looked at relocating out to California as one of the options, but we knew the company was going to sell and we really liked the Colorado lifestyle. We liked the schools that our kids were in. We liked our neighborhood and we felt, you know, that it was most important to stay put. And so after making that decision, we started to put a business plan together. Like I said earlier, we have had some experiences in building businesses from scratch. There were some experiences that we were able to draw from that allowed us to get a pretty quick start. And because of the work relations, you know, I was able to get revenue through the door pretty quick. And we started building the business. And within 12 months, we were pretty close to seven, $800,000 of revenue in our first year. And were you doing it part-time? Were you doing five logistics part-time while you're still commuting to California? Honestly, I'm getting kind of confused here. I thought everyone moved from California to Colorado. And then you're saying that you stayed in California. Can you clarify that a little bit? I never moved to California. Our family was in Colorado. The whole time. Okay. The whole time. A job that I took working with a client required me to commute to California, but I never lived there. So sorry about that. Okay, that's fine. And so you're working with another company. You were doing that full time and Five Logistics was kind of part time while you're growing it? Correct. Being able to work on it nights and weekends, you know, was definitely the way that we started it. It's kind of fun. When I speak to different classes, college students or high school students that want to be entrepreneurs, I give them this kind of visual. You know, you can work a 40 hour week, you can sleep eight hours a day, you can have 30 plus hours of personal time, and you still will have 40 hours a week to focus on starting your business. It's a good way of breaking it down. I never did the calculations there, but now I know. It makes sense because even like you might think that, oh, it takes all this time, but as long as you're efficient with it and, you know, maybe you have to give up some free time, but you're saying even then you have 30 hours of whatever time you want to do. If you budget your time, that's the only thing that no one can get any more of. We all have the same amount of it. And if you budget and you focus and you put a plan together, you will have the time to get things started and build what you want to build, whether it be a product or even, you know, an invention that would later turn into something. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because I've had this, even sending out emails to try to get guests on. They're like, I don't have time. I'm like, we all have time. It's what you want to prioritize. And if it's not the podcast, that's fine. I'm like, it really doesn't hurt my feelings. They're like, I'll let you know when we're open to it. You can say no. I try to make them say no and they won't ever say no. <laughs> so. We've trained ourselves to be too polite. Right. You know? I know. It's, it's ridiculous. They're like, we'll contact you when we're interested. I'm like, no, I'll contact you if I'm interested, which means, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So that's funny. So you're doing this you know, part time and it seems like even the first year you made profit, huh? We were really close. So whether we broke even a little bit of profit or a little bit of loss, it was exciting. Because I think by the end of the first year, we had 10, 15 accounts. We had built the team up to five or six people. We were a legit business. We had hung our shingle out and we were moving forward. And for the first time since my very first business, this was a ground up. It was an exciting time. 
I'm in my, you know, mid to late 30s when we started doing this. And that's the great time to jump in and give it a try. Well, let's get into details, if you don't mind, of like specifically, even in the first year, what you did right and what you did wrong. What would you advise somebody out to as starting a similar company, how they could do it successfully? Let me answer it this way. The thing that I think is really interesting about starting a business and all the books that you read and all of the courses that you take and the people that you talk to, they say, oh, you know, it's the greatest thing. You get out there, you come up with your concept, you get some money, you start working on sales, you're doing this, you're doing that. It's fun. And, you know, you can make the money. That's what America's built on, on the back of small business owners. And you got to do it. What they don't talk about is kind of preparing you for some of the challenges, some of the things that I think are not talked about as often as they should and not brought up. And what I mean by that is you're going to be forced as the business owner to make a lot of decisions and you're going to have to be okay with some of your decisions not being correct and having to navigate through that on a daily basis. You're going to feel lonely because you are the decision maker and everything ends with you. You're not always prepared for some of the challenges that come. You don't go to an entrepreneur class and they say, hey, let's talk today about what litigation looks like and why it's important to have good contracts and what are the challenges if you are to be involved in a lawsuit. Those are all things that become real to a business and can cause the harder side of starting and running a company to somebody that doesn't necessarily you know, think about that or prepare themselves for that. Speaking of those things that you said you weren't maybe prepared for, I mean, what were some of those things, especially in the early years? Because I'd like to concentrate on that because we all hear the stories of, you know, where you're at today and it's only five or six years, but that's a long time, you know? <laughs> and so there's a lot of little details that could help you succeed or not succeed. So what are a few of those things that you did in the beginning? One of the stories that I can share with you is when we started the business, we were going to go down the path of what most traditional 3PLs do. They spend most of their time working in managed transportation or helping people ship their goods from one location to the other. The size of the market is just significant. And so we got in there, we started working with carriers to get rates. We were hustling, we were finding some successes, but really at the end of the day, transportation is more of a basic commodity. You can find five or six different companies to move your product from, let's say, I've got a few pallets of product that need to go from here to Chicago. There's 20 carriers that are able to drive that lane and handle that shipment for you. And then there is, in the third-party world, there might be 200 companies in Denver or Colorado alone that will be able to manage that process for you. And as a startup, we were always struggling to be able to, in this commodity business, have pricing that allowed for clients to want to use our service and us to make enough money for it to make sense. The volume of shipments that we get would be there and then a little bit of time would go by and the volume would shrink and it would go away and we'd be like, what's going on? We'd call and they said, oh, well, I found another provider that was able to do this $200 shipment for $10 less. And, you know, for us, we've got to watch all of our money. So we're going to go with this other provider. We looked at that and we said, okay, well, we can either choose to match it and lower our margins. And it was this constant battle. I felt like I was, as the leader, pushing my team in a bad direction. That's when we looked at what we were to the market. We looked at what services we were offering and really what our clients were asking us to do. Even though I thought that managed transportation was going to be the backbone of the business, 
what most of our clients were coming to us and asking for was really what was going on in the warehouse. They were saying, hey, we're online. We would really like you to do our website fulfillment, or we'd like you to ship our wholesale orders. We were doing this and we were getting good at it, but I was already down the path of figuring out how to handle managed transportation and figure out how to make that successful. And it just wasn't working. It was a challenge. And so we decided as a business, I had to make the decision as the owner that we were going to do a massive pivot. And we started putting all of our time, effort, and energy into what it would take to be able to go after the fulfillment business. That was a huge change because we were in 10,000 feet and we were getting full. So that required us to move to a much bigger warehouse because of the pod industry. Finding warehouse space in Colorado was a challenge and it was a lot more expensive. And there's the equipment that has to go. So there were all these other problems that had to be solved for us to make that pivot successful. But we decided that was for us that was going to be the core competency of the business. And I made the hard decision and I was grateful that the team was excited and willing to make the change and switch. So I'm still not understanding what the pivot is. No, not a problem. For us, our pivot was having transportation as the core foundation of the business moved to more fulfillment services that we were doing as kind of an add-on. Fulfillment services became the main focus of our business. So what's the difference? The difference is that we are working with clients that might not do any shipping, but have us processing orders and fulfilling orders for them on a daily basis versus somebody that will use us to store pallets and have those pallets shipped across the country. So before, were you like brokering vehicles and making money off the transportation there versus having the warehouse and like we're saying the e-commerce, is that the difference? That's the difference. Okay. I think maybe you've just been in this industry so long that maybe someone like me who has no clue, it's hard to understand that these slight differences, even though they might seem like a massive pivot to you. I'm like, I have no idea what the hell he's talking about with a pivot here because it sounds like the same. Yeah. You're like, hey, Tyler, that doesn't sound big at all. I need a big story and you're not giving me anything. But, but really, <laughs> you know, we went from, let me put it in a couple different ways. We went from managing maybe 500 pallet positions and a couple hundred SKUs to today we're managing over 28,000 different items in our warehouse. We have 16, 1700 different positions in our warehouse. And rather than processing a few pallets, you know, a few 10, 15, 20 orders a day, we're processing some days in the thousands of orders a day, different orders going to different places. So you're becoming way more like, I guess, customer centric dealing with them as far as like maybe a management company and talking to them a lot more versus just looking at prices like and just the transportation costs, because over the long run, like you were saying, it's just going to drive it down and lead to negativity. Like within your company, if you're going to try to get as efficient as you can to get those prices lower, but it's a run to the bottom, right? And we're not as involved in their business. When you go from the one that just, you know, ships it from one warehouse to another warehouse or from one location to the other, it's a commodity. You're not as involved in their business. But Austin, today I am integrated from a technology with their finance systems. I'm integrated with their shopping carts. You know, I'm holding all of their inventory. We're talking on a regular basis about sales and promotions that they're doing. Most of our clients that we do fulfillment for, we are their largest vendor that they do work with, maybe second to the manufacturer that's building the product. But we are, after that, 
one of their most important vendors to be able to keep their business running. So we see our clients on a regular basis. They're super appreciative of what we do. You know, they come in and our account managers that they work with on a daily basis, they're bringing in donuts. We never got donuts from clients when we were doing transportation. It wasn't as big of a deal. So we are, as in their business model, we are a significant part. And when we do a good job, it allows them to continue to grow and succeed. And it's a good partnership at that point in time. And I'll send you donuts after this interview, so don't worry. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. No, but I couldn't think of the word, but you're right. It was just a commodity that over time, unless you are a massive company, it's going to drive down whatever you're doing. And you said you made that massive pivot to switch to more of this 3PL where you have more relationships and they actually care about you because like you were saying, other than the manufacturer, you're probably the second most important person once that if they're having products and holding it there. Like they need to get it out. So it's like you're very important in their company. But tell us, when was that pivot made? And you told us why, but when and then like, what were the financial ramifications as far as for your company? We made that in our second year of business. So we've been in our new place for the, this November will be four years. So we made that in 2014. And then in 2014, we had a staff of about seven people. We had one standard forklift, you know, we had racking. We ended up having to move and made the choice to move to a building we can grow into. So we went from 10,000 feet to 40,000 feet. We had to buy a lot more warehouse racking storage components. We had to buy more forklifts and lifts to get the business done. We grew our staff quite a bit. So, you know, for us, it was a challenge because we were a profitable business at that point and we needed to fund the increase in expenses before we had the revenue to support it. For me, it was a big decision and a big risk. We had a bunch of families that we were providing income for and everyone worked hard to do their part and we were able to get through it and build it over time. And so this makes sense why it was a quote unquote big pivot for you too, is that the money issue It's like you need a lot more money in order to have the infrastructure instead of just transporting things like a commodity. So what were you able to do in order to get that money to do that? Because I could see someone listening where they're in a similar situation with the business and they're like, hey, I want to pivot, but it's going to cost me so much more. I'm going to have to put money in. So it's going to be a big decision, even though I might be slightly profitable. But over time, I can see where it's going to you know, go down right, and not work out in their best interest. And they need that money in order to make the pivot. So what would you end up doing there? So to me, I've always had to find ways to get to the yes. It hasn't ever always been easy. So when we initially looked at the budget, we said, okay, our rent's going to go up. I had favorable rent prices in the 10,000 feet that I was in. So we are going to get almost a six times increase in our rent. We were going to have to get additional equipment. We were going to have to get internet set up and different offices set up. And, you know, on its face, it was several hundred thousand dollars to make this change. I didn't have, the business didn't have a several hundred thousand dollars, but we had to figure out how to get it done. And, you know, I have learned that you just got to keep breaking it down and looking at different ways to get the result that you need. And so I went to the landlord and I said, okay, we really like this place, but I can't afford it. What options do we have? What things can you do to help me? And the landlord came back and said, well, why don't we charge you 
less rent for your first few months and then a little bit more and a little bit more and I'll charge you the same rent that I was going to, but rather than it be a straight line, we'll start with a, a lower rent and you'll pay a little more on the back end when you've grown your business. And we looked at that and that chopped a significant amount of our expense off. We went and said, okay, we really don't need 40,000 feet, but we've got to pay rent on it. And as I said, the market for warehousing was a struggle. So I went and found another business that wanted to grow and needed space for a year or two. They wanted more space. So I actually brought them in as a sublet on day one. So I really wasn't utilizing 40,000 feet. And so I had someone come in and take 15,000 feet of that space. So I had a renter that was helping me cover the other amount of rent or, or pay a portion that I didn't have to. And then we went to the used market on equipment. Rather than buying new, we bought used. The technology and the computers, the office equipment, the desks, you know, all of those, they came from Craigslist. They were super nice and super new. We got it from a mortgage company that was going out of business, but it wasn't new and we didn't have to pay new price. If you pause there. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what, I'm here, I got to do this. I just joined Patreon to support you guys. So that's something that helps you guys out, keep doing what you're doing, man. Cool, you know? Yeah, I appreciate it. With the Patreon membership, you get this one-on-one -on -one call. Plus, we're doing two group calls a month now with past guests. Plus, there's an exclusive Patreon feed where you get special episodes if you're a Patreon member. Oh, man. Nice. I'll to snap to you. Awesome. I think that's really important. There's so many people, even when they get a business loan, they think they have to go buy a brand new computer from Dell or whatever, or like a brand new desk, all that other stuff. When so often you can go to Craigslist and there's companies that are going out of business that you can buy their stuff for a fourth of the price. And it's almost identical to what they had there, you know? So I applaud you, I guess, for doing that and being strategic on that. And I guess the things you've done so far. So even as simple as, you know, you walk into an office and I think every office that I went to had this big fancy copier, you know, it's a lease and they're super yeah. expensive and, right. and all this stuff. And they are really expensive. Some people don't know. I mean, it's, we're talking about like thousands of bucks, like a year, if not more, right? Oh, per month. Yeah. Almost. That's what I thought. Like, cause I've never had. Not per year, per month. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't even get our business to the point where I would sign a lease on a copier until we were in business over four years. We were still going to Costco and buying the $250 printers and copiers and scanners. And, you know, they would last maybe six months and then we'd burn it out. And we'd have to go buy another one. And I mean, that's how we ran our business. So by the time that we boiled it down, my initial budget of what I thought it would take being $200,000 was probably less than $20,000. As an entrepreneur right there, just thinking strategically on what you can do to make this thing work. So... That's great. You gave us like, I guess, two or three things right there. Was there anything else that you can think of, you know, when you're starting or maybe you're pivoting or starting a new business that really worked? Because I think so far, this is the key of everything you said so far in the interview. One thing that I think is important for people to realize is it's really hard to make money. It is really, really, really easy to lose money and to lose a lot of money. And so when you're making decisions, when you're deciding, you know, does the company really need this? Do I need to make this decision? Do I need to sign this contract? Thinking through how important it is, is there a different way to do it? Is 
Is there a lower item that you can get that maybe in a couple years you'll be able to upgrade because you'll be in a different situation? If you spend and grow your business with that mindset and really work hard to ensure that you are reaching your profit numbers that you need to, to me, that is the foundation of companies that last beyond three years, that last beyond five years. And what else did you do when you actually moved into the building? Because you're talking about today, you're pretty efficient with everything. But what have you figured out from when you did that pivot to where you are today, as far as like increasing profits and revenue? For me, what is interesting is when we were doing less than a million and growing the two million, and there was a year where we had a really good year and we did 3.7 a couple years ago, there comes a time where you have to make kind of a switch. And there's a couple of things that I think let you know that the business has changed. When I started it, I couldn't get anybody to call me back, like from a vendor. Hey, come in, you know, I'm starting a business. I want to do work with you. If they would call me back, there wasn't any discounts and there wasn't any real wins that we would get. Everything was hard and difficult. But as the company started growing and as we got into our second and third and fourth year, the vendors that wouldn't give me a time of day all of a sudden started knocking on my door and they started wanting to do business with us. And so we were able to see and make improvements on a lot of our contracts and a lot of the vendors that we use for materials and supplies because we became what they deemed as an established company, a company that was growing and had enough volume to warrant it. We saw a win in that side of the business. And about the same time, I felt it important that being absolutely working on the lowest cost way to get it done wasn't necessarily always the right way to do it. And so today we have a much better balance between cost and service when we look at things. Today we will pay more. You know, I stopped going to Costco and buying printers and I signed one of those fancy leases. We've done things that allowed the business to be able to do what they needed to do that has been supported as we've continued to grow. So for me, I think it's important that you work hard. You work really, really hard in the early stages of a business to do everything you can to save as much money as you possibly can. I won't say do it on the cheap, but be as smart and work hard to find the best possible deals you can so that as the business grows and matures, you'll be in a position to know when you don't need to go with the lowest cost item, when you can buy something nicer and you know you can look to the future a little bit longer and make better decisions for the company. I think this is a most important concept for any entrepreneur because whatever you're doing, you're always going to like you get the value on the acquisition side of even if you're buying an asset like the printer, like you're saying, even if they only lasted six months and they are $150 printers, you don't necessarily want to be doing that today. But by seeing how much value you gained for your company by doing that, usually you find that value by getting some of the lowest cost items. It doesn't mean it's always the lowest cost. It's, you have to find out where the value is. Like you're saying now your company's big enough and like it's not worth it for you to go keep buying, you know, maybe 12 printers a, a year from Costco, depending on your company size. Like now the value is, hey, it's not worth our time to do dealing with that. But in the early years, it's about those expenses and you having that time. That's what you should be valuing more than maybe the expenses. Whereas today it switches over time. I think it also helps you with perspective. 
When you start and fight your way through starting a business, knowing where you came from allows you as you grow bigger and stronger to have a perspective on what's important and what things are really needed and what things are more glamorous and not necessarily critical for the business to be this success. If you don't go through that experience, if you don't have that experience, I think it's harder to make the right decisions down the road. How do you keep growing today? Because we didn't really touch on that too much as far as sales and who you're contacting to make money. How do you figure out like who you need to call to try to get in there and where do you actually make the money with your sales team or is there a strategy behind that? Today we're lucky because a lot of our business either comes from referral or from people looking for us. In transportation, you know, like I said, there's a couple hundred different providers and so that business model has to go out and knock on customers' doors and work on selling them. The amount of fulfillment providers is substantially less. And so if someone wants to be in Colorado or wants to have someone handle their fulfillment in the West, they'll start looking. They'll do Google searches and they'll look through their browser and try and find uh, companies to call. And we have been working hard enough in that area that we are on the list of the top few that these customers call. And so we get to have a lot of conversations with people starting businesses or people growing out of their provider and wanting to get into a bigger provider or needing more services. So that's where most of our sales come from today. So at least another thing we've learned, I think, at least I have from the interviews, difference between quote unquote transportation and then like logistics, the third party logistics, like it, I thought it was all kind of ramped into one. But as far as what you do and how many different avenues there are, and as smart of you, I guess, I don't know if you figured that out at the time, but you're saying there's a lot less competition in what you're doing now versus doing the transportation. But you say that's how a lot of people find you today. We never really talked about, if you have a few more minutes, is like getting the early customers before you had word of mouth. Like what worked best for you? I would do what I used to do in previous businesses. You know, when I sold transportation, I would go out and knock doors and I would talk to other businesses and say, hey, you know, here's our services that we're offering. And I would work sales from that avenue. Well, one sec, you're obviously smart, but you had to have a plan together, right? When it's not like you just randomly kept walking around, like, how did you think of, hey, these are where my customers are? Like, what did you use a list that was online? Like, how did you find those people before you even went to go knock on the doors? I think with being in transportation so long, I had learned by this time what's a good account for the services that we offered and where to find them. So yes, it's a combination of knowing where in the city to go to, you know, what groups to join and be a part of, what searches and lists to look after. And honestly, it's a combination of all of them doing a little bit of all of that. Was there anything in particular that helped you the most looking back? Because you were even saying it's hard to get revenue, right? So I think we understand the concepts of like cutting costs and hopefully people can be strategic about that because that seems a little bit more simple. Still, I think a lot of people don't do it. But as far as the revenue side, is there anything that you recommend that worked or didn't work when you were trying to find those first clients or customers that we could use for our companies? For me, my strength has been on the sell side. Mm -hmm. And one core principle that I live and breathe is that you'll eventually go through enough no's to get to the yeses. And you have to be willing to work through customers saying no or not a right fit to get to your numbers. 
and you know you can be the greatest salesman in the world you could have the greatest product and you're still going to have people tell you no if you can't handle that no and can't continue to move forward sales and finding revenue for a business is hard so over the years i've learned how to continue to work through that and take the no's and the hard conversations and say okay i'm going to keep trying because this is just one down and you know i'll eventually get to my numbers so are you saying it's just kind of a numbers game then? I think it's a numbers game, but you've got to have the mindset to be able to accept that 95 people will say no so that you can find five people to say yes. Was it hard at first? It's still hard today. The numbers are bigger and the deals are bigger, but a no still feels the same way as a no did back 20 years ago when I was knocking doors. Well, I found out for me, I've become very emotionalist about it. Like if someone says no, I'm like, well, uh, you know, I always almost come in with not necessarily, like, I think negatively, but I'm like, they'll probably say no. So when they say yes, I'm more excited. Like if it's a no, it's like, uh, I never get my hopes up anymore on like, oh yeah, maybe potentially until like something's signed or I got money in the bank. We touched on this earlier though, right? I think you and I both like no's. Right. The things that we hate is the maybe right. or I'll get back to you or the non-answer. Right. Whatever you do, give me a no or a yes because I got to move on or I got to continue to work with you because I'm going to work with you until you say yes or no. And the guys that say, hey, I really like the idea and then they don't call you back or they're like, hey, we're going to work this in and they really don't. You know, Those are the hard ones, I think, that take forever to get through. Yeah. So if you're listening right now, don't be a bullshitter and just keep people straggling <laughs> along because it really is the worst thing you can do. I mean, because honestly, I never get my hopes up with it. Whenever someone says like, maybe, yeah, like I said, I get very more direct in my emails now because I just don't care. But it's like, if you're being that person dragging someone along when you know it's a no, just say, I don't think it's going to work versus like, maybe you're not being kind to yourself or to the other person. Like you and I said, I appreciate it more because then I'm like, okay, fine. No, that's good. That's what we're hired to do. We're hired to go find business. And if you really don't want it, if you're really not interested, being respectful enough to say no is actually better than, as you said, saying anything else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So either say yes and let's talk about it or a hard no and they can move on. So looking back, is there any last pieces of advice? Because I think we gave some here at the end, especially. But is there any one last thing you might want to leave with all the people who are listening? The one thing that I'll end with is I'm grateful for the opportunity to be on your show, to be selected and be here as an honor. So I appreciate that. But, you know, as someone that is, has been a part of several businesses, I honestly think that at the end of the day, I'll continue to do it. There are enough positives that come from starting and running and owning your own business that far outweigh the challenges and being able to become comfortable with what challenges you do have so that you can enjoy the successes to me is the greatest win. And once you become an entrepreneur and find success, it's hard to go away from it. So we're in a country that allows for people to get out there and do it every day. And there really isn't any reason that should hold anybody back from doing so. Because at the end of the day, you and I agreed that everyone has the same amount of time. I really have fun doing something I want to do, even if you make them less money and it's more work. But if it's enjoyable, then it doesn't really matter to me, at least if I'm enjoying it versus doing a job where I'd be making way more and not happy. At the end of the day, I think all of us want to be happy and building something like this makes it more fun and gives you more freedom. Ultimately, it might not seem like it, especially in the beginning, but I think over the long run, most people will be pleasantly surprised. And that's why they're building the business. I agree. Well, what happens if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview? What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Through our website or my personal email is tyler.walton, W-A-L-T-O-N, at 5logistics.com. And that's the number five. And we didn't get to it. So your father, Sam Walton, right? He is unfortunately not. <laughs>
I, I, I would not be on this podcast <laughs> if I was part of that Walton family. Well, thank you again for doing the interview. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Have a good day. Guess what, Patreon members? I got our next five group calls already lined up for you. We got Jonathan Cogley from episode 85 taking your questions on how to find other entrepreneurs to partner with. Then we got Aviv Shagli for you, who's an entrepreneur from Israel. He's already had two successful business exits, and his interview is really inspiring. Next, we got Lisa Wise from episode 37, where she'll tell you exactly how she grew her real estate management company from the ground up, and how you can too. Next, we got Ron Holt from episode 197, telling you how he grew two maids in a mop, not to be confused with two girls and one cup. And he basically grew his single location cleaning business to now a franchise model that covers 81 markets in the US. And he'll tell you how you can do the exact same thing. And last but not least, and by popular demand, we have Doug Smith from episode 182, which might have been our most open interview of all time. Well, anyhow, I hope you join us on these calls. I only invite my favorite guests back to do these group calls. And we try to have a good time while also getting your business questions answered. Plus, if you ever miss a call, we've got a back catalog of every group call. So if you're tired of, I don't know, being a passive pussy, then come join us. I mean, are you just going to keep listening to this podcast and not do anything? Or are you going to be proactive and get in the game? Well, hopefully it's the latter because it helps you and me. And if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member and you're not already, then Go visit our website at millionaire-interviews.com and sign up today where you'll get instant access to all past group calls plus our special Patreon episodes. So hopefully you join us on the group call and become a member today.